Hello, and welcome to Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI. We release weekly AI news coverage and also interviews with people in AI. I'm your host, Sharon Joe. In this special interview episode, we'll get to hear from Sean McGregor. Sean is the ML architect at the neural accelerator startup, Sentient, works with the XPRIZE Foundation to structure the IBM Watson AI XPRIZE, which just awarded its $5 million prize in AI for good this past week. And he is also the creator and maintainer of the Partnership in AI's AI Incident Database, which will be the topic of our uh, discussion today. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us for this episode. Thanks, Sharon. It's great to be here. I'm very excited about the AI Incident Database. We chatted about it in our uh, weekly uh, AI news podcast. Uh, could you give us a quick high-level overview of the uh, of what it does? Sure. So the AI Incident Database is inspired by similar databases in sectors like aviation, where you collect all the uh, failures, accidents, incidents uh, into one place, and then you use those collections of failures to actually inform uh, industrial practices and, and design to make it so that uh, those systems are uh, much safer and, and better for the world. So in the case of AI, this seemed uh, to be a natural fit because, uh, you know, in, in contrast to to aviation, which uh, you just need to make the, the designs better and uh, uh, you, you don't really need to apply your imagination. In the case of intelligent systems, you very often uh, don't know how things can go wrong until you're provided with an example. And then you kind of slap your forehead and say like, oh, of, of course, that's a thing that we need to solve. And so it's just makes a natural intuitive sense that we should collect all these failures into one place and use them to, uh, you know, tell the uh, heads of products at companies, the machine learning engineers at companies, the the general public, uh, what AI is and is, is not good at, and uh, what problems need to be solved before we're we're really at the state of truly robust AI for the real world. Right, and uh, you span a lot of different types of incidents that either are causing near harm or do cause harm to, to people. And I see that you have a definition of harm uh, and near harm specifically on, on your site. And some really cool examples, uh, just to give the audience a sense of uh, what there is, is Google's YouTube kids app criticized for inappropriate content is one of them. If you remember uh, the inappropriate content uh, that was served to YouTube kids, uh a few years ago. Um, and there's also, when it comes to gorillas, Google Photos remain blind. Uh, and this is uh, about uh, the new story that broke out around uh, Google's uh, computer vision algorithm, basically classifying uh, a lot of people who are black into gorillas, uh, which is very inappropriate. Um, and finally, a Tesla driver killed while using autopilot was watching Harry Potter when it says, um, so all, spanning from, you know, things that are just in the software world to, uh, to Tesla crashes um, that very much uh, are, are killing people. Um, could you give me a sense of how you came up with some of the definitions for harm and um, also how, how you've been collecting um, all of these incidents? Sure. So uh, initially, uh, and still, the definition of, of harm is intentionally broad, and uh, we generally err towards inclusion of things so long as uh, there is a harm or, or a near harm. Um, and 
I, we came up with the definition that is presently on the uh, database in collaboration with uh, Georgetown Center of uh, Security and Emerging Technology. And uh, we've been collaborating uh, uh, with them extensively. There's actually a new feature that's uh, due to be rolled out shortly, probably around the, the time that uh, uh, this podcast episode posts, um, including a, a taxonomy that goes through and classifies all the incidents that are in the database according to a, a, a great many tabular um, uh, tabular entries, a lot of uh, yeah. uh, types of harms, uh, uh, entities associated with it. Uh, I'm quite excited to roll that out into the world. Uh so the definition of, of harm, it's, it's basically, uh, if, if you were to capture it into a single sentence, would be something along the lines of uh, is someone saying that there was a harm. Uh, and mm, yeah. uh, that, uh, that's really a, a, enough to, to get in here and uh, to be sufficient for people to want to learn from those incidents and to uh, prevent that from happening in the future. Right. And for each of these incidents, I see that you list a ton of news articles associated with it. So for a lot of them, they've they've re- received quite a bit of attention. Um, when you released the AI incident database, what was the reception like? Because I know that, you know, the corporate names are there um, and there's data collected of, you know, who uh, who has the most incidents or or at least people have reported on that. Um, what was reception like both from, I guess, corporations, but also the public? Because I, I feel like this is long overdue. Uh, yeah, I, I agree completely. And I, I think that uh, it's probably a, a useful uh, binning that you did there of uh, talking about uh, corporations and the general public. I think on the uh, case of the general public, it's it's very much the kind of spectacle of, of, uh, of AI and um, I think that the database is serving a, a important need for them where it is collecting all these different viewpoints into one place so they can uh, sort through and um, uh, kind of allow for uh, the ground truth to emerge out through uh, synthesizing the, the different different viewpoints that are represented. But uh, by and large, you can expect more people to read an article in Wired than uh, reading the incident database itself. So the, from the general public perspective, um, the, uh, uh, the, the things that are incorporated into the database are, are probably more, more impactful than the uh, database itself. The database is generally uh, pointed towards trying to prevent the uh, recurrence of these things happening mm-hmm. in the future. It's it's trying to inform the uh, machine learning uh, engineer or researcher like uh, like myself that's in the company and make it so that um, you know I really have that ammunition uh, when I need to go to the uh, leadership at a company and say, uh, hey, we need to spend X amount of time and uh, Y billions of dollars uh, additional to solve this problem. Otherwise, you're going to get a, a story in, in Wired or the, the MIT Technology Review or something like that talking about uh, how, how terrible the system is. And um, uh, so it, it's really a useful corporate tool and uh, it's something that uh, uh, people and companies are, are going to uh, want to be able to use. 
Uh, you can actually already see that to a degree in a lot of the incidents that are in the database, which and uh, a lot of cases are sourced from people that uh, are or were working at mm-hmm. uh, major tech companies. They they're very interested in bringing together resources like these, and um, you know uh, there's a lot of different uh, viewpoints within companies towards things like the instant database. And I, I think the, the final group to cover there and bet it in your question is probably the uh, corporate communications officers and the uh, messaging and and everything that they're trying to put out into the world. And um, I don't think that they have. Uh, uh, too much to fear from a, a collection of news articles that are generally lower profile than uh, uh, <laughs> the news articles themselves. And I, I, there, there may in fact actually be a little bit of a, a normalizing effect of just letting people know how hard these things are and uh, right. um, that, uh, I, that that could probably actually be a little bit useful on the, the corporate messaging side of things. I, I don't think that we should normalize, um, normalize failures, but, uh, I think coming to an understanding of what is, uh, uh, what is the current state of the art and AI is quite useful, uh, for ensuring we, we do that responsibly. Right. And there might be an additional category of ML researchers and engineers who are working on this actively. And, um, you know, I, I see each news article as it comes, uh, and then it's fleeting and, and you don't, you don't have it all together, uh, in your head at once. And I think this database makes it so that, you know, I can return to it. I can see, you know, where we're at for all of these things. If maybe even if we've progressed from some of those incidents, um, and change what I do. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so maybe that's, that's yet another category. Yeah. The, uh, part of the origin story after the database is that, uh, it became, clear that a lot of people were maintaining these informal lists and uh, developing their own uh, catalog of, of failures mm-hmm. and using those um, for their rhetorical purposes to <laughs> explain to management what the systems they are building can, can and can't do. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I agree. And that, that, I mean, this was born out of your own work in a sense too, right? The, the origin story. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the <laughs> kind of going back, uh, probably 11 years uh, at this point, uh, I, I remember, a, a moment very clearly of just kind of coming to a realization in uh, my PhD program that, uh, machine learning was simultaneously incredibly powerful, but just immensely brittle and just really lacking a lot of the, uh, uh, solid theory and foundation that uh, you build a lot of uh, econometrics uh, work onto where you're uh, looking very hard at the relationship between variables. Uh, Just the the behavior of so many machine learning systems emerge through data and um, that's a mentally dangerous thing. And uh, as a result, I uh, started moonlighting during the course of my PhD on uh, a lot of what uh, uh, others have termed technological activism. Um, I actually mm-hmm. spent a, a good period of time figuring out how to uh, apply usable cr- cryptography onto things like uh, uh, Google emails or Gmail messages, Facebook chats, uh, really the rest of the web had some success there, but um, 
I ultimately ran into a cat and mouse game that uh, the technologies uh, we were developing looked a lot like uh, spammers um, mm-hmm. and people that were scraping data off of systems. Um, but then on the on the other side of my um, of my work and the grad school work, I was working on uh, uh, reinforcement learning as applied to wildfire suppression policy. Mm-hmm. So deciding what you should do in response to a wildfire, uh, should you suppress it? Should you uh, let it burn and simulating forests for century time spans in order to arrive at those decisions and came to a very close understanding of uh, the weird things that can result at the intersection of simulators, reinforcement learning, and the the values that you bring onto the reward functions in those simulators. And I I found in that setting that uh, if you uh, applied different reward functions, like if you valued the uh, the ecology of the forest more so than uh, the timber or less so than uh, smoke inhalation, which is also a, a major factor in forestry policy, uh, the policy that you would apply to it would shoot from uh, uh, suppressing all wildfires to letting all wildfires burn. And it, it really highlighted to me the extent to which the intelligence systems were developing are at this perfect storm of uh, society, technological capability, and um, you know the values that uh, different constituencies bring to it. And um, I, as a result, have developed a, a good number of systems around uh, trying to surface uh, the technologies and the uh, kind of democracy of the code and make it so that it's accessible to uh, people that aren't uh, spending a few years hacking together a, a solution that um, gets deployed to the real world. Yeah, I think that also speaks to how brittle some of these systems might be or how easily adaptable they could be going from, you know, one action or one policy to a next. And I, yeah, it, it feels like... <laughs> We want, I think in an ideal world, we want our AI system to somehow find this perfect nuanced solution, right? And it, it seems to have fallen into um, maybe based on training data, maybe based on a lot of other things that we put into our algorithms, fallen into the, the camps that, that we know too familiarly um, that we already uh, have created for ourselves. Yeah, and, uh, and and this is why uh, representation and the field of AI is so important because uh, people in AI find themselves in a position that very often they they didn't ask for or, or didn't want, which is you know making these really giant decisions that are replicated uh, millions or billions of times and have immense impacts across the world, and. Um, in order for that that person to I think feel you know calm and, and okay with the uh, decisions that they're making engineering wise, they, there has to be a lot more that um, exposes the decisions to the world and makes it so that uh, uh, it's a little bit more democratic or or available to it. Because um, w- without that, we're um, we're, we're not going to find ourselves in a, in a very good state. Right. And hopefully the AI incident database, just to bring us back a little bit, um, will help with, I don't know, some decision making or at least becoming conscious of, of some of the things that we're, that we've been doing. Yeah. The, 
the, the Einstein database in many ways is a, a developing a checklist of, of things that you need to solve in order to deploy to the problems that uh, are associated with, with incidents. And that's an immensely useful thing for your engineering processes. Right. And, and I love how it's not just a, you know, just a list. You also have data on, on your list, like you have leaderboards and, um, those leaderboards, you know, of the submitters, uh, the top submitters, the top authors of, of various articles, uh, the top domains. I thought that was really interesting, uh, especially just giving, almost giving credit to certain media outlets, uh, for reporting it. Right. Yeah, yeah, and you and you can see which media outlets have uh, people that are are covering this issue area and, and doing so in depth, and where mm. the where the expertise and uh, the the fourth estate lie, and that that is a very useful thing as well. Um, we in, in our next update, which um, uh, comes out shortly, it's going to have uh, even more statistics and things that uh, um, go beyond the. Uh, unstructured full text of all the articles. Uh, exciting. <laughs> yeah, quite exciting to, to show on that. And um, w- one thing that was striking for me on that is, uh, you know, you have the the usual suspects of, of companies in there that are very prominent in uh, developing of uh, AI systems and bringing them to the world. Uh, they're the ones that have you know, the multi-million or multi-billion dollar budgets to bring things. But there's also um, a very large number of just companies that fit into the other category, ones that are uh, kind of downstream for, from that uh, leading research. And it shows that it, it is spreading out through society at this point, And there's a, a lot more parties involved in the deployment of these systems now. Oh, that's so interesting. So it's almost like, I mean, we have these incidents, but if we could also trace the lineage of that incident, because they're not necessarily coming they're not actually doing that that research in house. They're just applying something that has already been published. That that would be super interesting to see. Just you know, what is the lineage of this, and what is also from a researcher's perspective, especially those in academia, uh, what is the impact of your work that you've you've been putting out, right? Uh, so the. So the impact of the Anson database so far, I've, I've been um, uh, quite happy to see. We've actually. Uh, we've had users from now 157 different countries visiting it. And this is where um, uh, we need to do a, a lot more to make it representative of the incidents that are occurring around the world. We mm. need those th- those people to come in and uh, contribute the, their insights because uh, uh, that's uh, something will happen in, in China, for instance. Right. That uh, we can learn quite a lot about in the application in the U.S. of, uh, of similar systems. And uh, there's a lot of uh, knowledge sharing that, that can occur there. And I'm hoping to uh, add on more uh, capacities for uh, applying a, a translation on uh, unincident reports sourced from uh, non-English uh, outlets. Right now, it's all uh, entirely English. And... Um, uh, despite that, among the uh, top countries, there's uh, uh, China and India actually have a, a good number of users uh, coming into the system. Also, a huge number of Finns. I, I don't know uh, what's going on in Finland for us to get so many uh, users <laughs> as compared to uh, the, the number of people that are in Finland. But if someone could explain that to me, I'd uh, be curious <laughs> to learn. Um, 
why they're all coming in. And then so our VPNs uh, are routing there. That's why. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's actually uh, that's been suggested to me, and I'm I, I am wondering uh, if that is that is a very real possibility. And in which case, we have a lot of VPN users. And, yeah, that's, um, that's weird too. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and then uh, on the kind of. Uh, PhD uh, work side of things of doing the um, uh, uh, wildfire work. I think uh, uh, the the biggest takeaway on that one is the degree to which uh, uh, that whole policy area, area is uh, trapped in um, a political morass, and we need to uh, come to grips with that as a, as a problem of uh, what it means to have people that are building in the uh, wildland and urban interface, the the WUI and uh, you know, who's bearing what uh, costs of uh, fire suppression and uh, whether it's a socially born cost or an individually born cost of those that uh, were deploying millions of dollars on uh, uh, stamping out fires in an area that um, historically had fires and it's protecting a $100,000 uh, uh, structure. Man. And um, so a lot of my work there was building the visual analytic systems and uh, and the like that allowed for uh, understanding the optimizations that are produced on the basis of changing reward functions. And, uh, I'm, I'm uh, seeing some impacts on that, but, uh, uh, ultimately, I did not feel that, uh, the system was appropriate for, uh, arriving at suppression decisions for a live wildfire. It's good for the ones figuring out policies and like why people are yelling at them when they're, uh, when they're <laughs> writing the, the forest, uh, uh, management plans that, uh, uh incorporate these optimizations. Right. And maybe as part of the database, there could be another section of, you know, what is gridlocked or what what AI can't really solve right now um, or shouldn't be applied to right now. Yeah. Yeah. The, the database itself. Uh, so, like, let me go a little bit into the design there because I, sure. um, I think it's important to explain the kind of the voice brought by the database and, and mm-hmm. what its position uh, positioning is. Um, the way that we've architected the, the database is it's meant to be uh, multiple perspective in the uh, data presented and uh, the characterization uh, of, that, of that data. Uh, what that means is uh, we're presenting... Uh, multiple publications, multiple reports about the incident. Uh, so you can have a list of, uh, I think we top out somewhere in the, the 30s of a uh, number of publications that uh, are associated with an incident. And each of those bring their own perspective to it. They each have their own voice and uh, they can be as biased or as unbiased as, as they want to be uh, on that in whatever direction makes sense. What the database itself does though, is it doesn't have something that says they, you know, this is the findings of the database. This is the, uh, the panel has met and decided, uh, you know, X companies at fault and the impact was $10 billion. Uh, that's, uh, really, um, on the, the people reading it and distilling all these different viewpoints. I, I can, uh, distill it on the basis of this infrastructure we're developing that incorporates all these different viewpoints into it. And so we have the perspectives of of people getting incorporated in incident reports. We also have uh, a new new feature coming out uh, for taxonomies, uh, which is uh, allowing uh, third parties to go through the database and apply their own coding set or qualitative uh, analysis of the data set, and then incorporate that 
uh, into the database, either in uh, full text or also in uh, uh, tabular or uh, uh, categorical form, uh, numerical form, depending on what it is they're, they're trying to do. And uh, this is where I'm, I'm really excited as a machine learning researcher of just how rich this data set is going to get and how you can uh, build systems that you know, monitor, the, monitor the entire internet for uh, incidents that have been uh, reported on but not uh, committed to the database yet. So have a uh, continual uh, dashboard of what is happening with AI in the world and uh, where things are going wrong. Uh, so there's really a great opportunity in NLP research here that I, that I hope people will take up. That's really exciting. I love it. And, and as you expand to different languages, too, I can imagine there are there will be cultural differences and cult- different cultural viewpoints as well um, around a single incident uh, that you'll pick up on and maybe add to um, and then have these diverse perspectives for for each for each incident. Uh, indeed. And maybe if it's all translated in every language, you know, everyone could just read all of those points of views. And that would be that would be very exciting. As I know, I'm multilingual and and I know the news sounds very different um, or perspectives change a lot <laughs> language to language yeah. or maybe just culture to culture, even language to language. Yeah. And um, I, I think that's particularly important since so many systems are global in nature. So right. uh, something that is an incident in uh, the U.S. might not be an incident in India or, or vice versa. And um, it takes a lot of uh, a cultural appreciation for, to produce a global model that's making decisions in, in all contexts. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and now shifting from uh, the AI incident database to uh, your work with the X Prize for a little bit, um, I'd love to chat about uh this prize, what it was rewarded for, um, and uh, the overall process, and how long you've been been involved with that. Sure. So, uh, I first uh, signed on to the X Prize effort in 2017. It was actually uh, shortly before defending my PhD, and the X Prize Foundation had just announced a prize in AI for good. So, I. I improve the world in some form, use, uh, use AI to do it. This is very different from what the Express Foundation typically does. It's, it's best known for the uh, Ansari X Prize, which was uh, awarded, I think, something like 20 years ago. And that was in space access. So can you get to, uh, get to space, pass the Von Karman line twice in the space of two weeks with the same platform? It was really launching the effort for... Uh, reusability and, and space ac- access. And after that, it's it's done a series of grand challenge competitions in various areas, uh, uh, carbon capture, education. And uh, each of them, it's largely been a uh, challenge-specific uh, challenge technology agnostic. So you can apply any technology you want to solve the problem, but uh, there's a definition of the problem you need to solve. In the case of, uh, of AI, though, uh, the approach was you will improve the world, you will use AI, so it's uh, technology-specific, challenge-agnostic, and then you'll be qualitatively judged on how much you're improving the world via your uh, your advancements. And so uh, about four years ago, we had 150-ish um, uh, proposals for uh, how teams would compete towards the $5 million prize purse, uh, generously funded by, by IBM. And uh, a lot of the, the work in the intervening time was figuring out how to 
uh, appropriately judge them, uh, enable them to be successful, and uh, ensure that uh, their work was uh, maximally uh, benefiting society. Like the from the earlier conversation uh, uh, we've had today, uh, there's ample reasons to believe that uh, even things with the best intentions can go wrong, and we had to figure out ways of uh, ensuring that would not happen. And uh, uh, so over the course of the years, we've, we've whittled it down from uh, initially we were cutting things on, uh, uh, on the basis of the problem that they're approaching. Uh, we recruited a, a group of largely AI academics for the, uh, for the first few rounds of the competition. And they applied largely academic review processes of the team's reporting and uh, uh, the judges selecting the, the most deserving ones to move on. And uh, we arrived then yet, uh, just this last week um, at the finals for the competition, which uh, pitted three teams against uh, each other for uh, the prize burst. The, the top team got uh, $3 million, uh, second place $1 million, third place 500000 And then uh, the remainder 500000 was uh, was awarded to the uh, uh, two, two other teams uh, outside this group. And uh, to to step you from um, uh, third to to first, uh, the third place team uh, was Marinus Analytics. They actually uh, work to uh, uh, try and uh, find and uh, protect people that uh, have been sex trafficked, and they actually mm. um, uh, crawl a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of the internet actually looking for someone that's disappeared or been uh, sex trafficked. And then they use that to uh, try and uh, get them out of a, a bad situation. Um, uh, second place was uh, AI Fred, which is um, uh, a startup that uh, does uh, clinical depression uh, treatment. Uh, so one of the problems that we have in mental health treatment is that uh, different people respond differently to uh, mental health medications and uh, and standards of practice, and it's very um, it's very uh, difficult and time consuming, and uh, on both the uh, uh, mental health industry and also particularly on the person to find uh, the best treatment, and so uh, what this uh, team has done is they've developed systems that. Uh, generalize and and suggest uh, uh, treatments on the basis of uh, of past patient data and uh, helps systematize better standards of practice across uh, the mental health uh, industry. Uh, finally, uh, the the grand prize winner here is uh, one in malaria uh, eradication. So. Uh, there's a lot of mosquito abatement work that happens throughout the world trying to uh, eradicate uh, particularly the mosquitoes that uh, produce um, uh, malaria uh, outbreaks in, in areas. And they've been combining several different elements that help identify, for instance, where standing water is. Uh, if you know where the water is, you can go and you can uh, spray that water to eliminate the mosquitoes in it. And um, uh, they've done things like develop simulators for um, um, uh, mosquito spread and effectiveness of uh, those activities. And they've uh, put a lot of this intelligence into the hands of people in um, uh, particularly several African countries and uh, into smartphones and help them understand where the most efficient application of uh, mosquito abatement practices are. And um, 
So th this is just a sampling of, of three of you know, 150 plus teams that were all vying towards uh, uh, winning the, the X prize and uh, was really a great laboratory and, and good and, and how we can uh, improve the world with AI. We, we've talked a lot today about the negative uh, things that uh, AI can do. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't go into AI to, uh, to be a critic. I went into it because I think it's immensely powerful and it's something that uh, we should absolutely build and, and bring into the world. We just have to uh, put through the uh, time, attention and, uh, and effort to make sure it's, it's beneficial. I love it. So AI for good, it could also be good. It's, it's a tool. And of course it could be a weapon as a, as a tool, but you know, it can be for both. And these are, these are large projects. Um, very impressed with kind of the scale of, of each of these and how much they've, uh, they've built. Um, and now I guess ending on more of a fun note of, uh, are there any, you know, hobbies or habits outside of work? Uh, this is just a common question we ask. Um, anything beyond all of this that you do? Maybe all of these are your hobbies already. Uh, you, you're right that, uh, <laughs> that I do consider um, working on things like the Instant Database to be a, a, a passion project um, uh, that's, that's close enough to um, uh, my core pr profession that uh, I... Uh, th those two become a, a little bit mixed. Uh, I think stepping away from uh, AI, I, I could say that uh, I, I enjoy uh, uh, running and uh, I did track and field for uh, for more than a decade and uh, um, uh, try and uh, uh, play the distance runner uh, from time to time. And uh, I, I was always a sprinter. And um, yeah, it's a... Um, cooking and, and, and the like as well. Uh, Netflix, <laughs> uh, the, it's, it's a little bit harder to talk about hobbies, uh, right at the end of the pandemic because the, uh, uh the number True. of things one could do in the, in public spaces, uh, went away for a while. I was rock climbing and all that, but, uh, oh, yeah. uh, uh, it was hard to go to rock gyms for a while. Oh, for sure. Yes. Uh, I was also a sprinter, so that's cool. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Sean. Well, th thank you for, for having me. It's uh, It's been a pleasure talking. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find articles on similar topics to today's and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be sure to tune in to our future episodes.